the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Monday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com, the website. You can get podcasts there. You can also get podcasts on Spotify and iTunes, of course. On social media at Dan Prof Show, and um, we begin talking about uh, the lockdowns and the implications as they persist, even as you're you're seeing for political reasons, mayors, governors trying to put their lockdown predilections behind them and slowly reopen for the benefit of the Biden administration and the political landscape for him. Uh, so long as uh, there'll be enough money printed and drop shipped from D.C., so long as uh, everybody backs everybody else to make sure nobody suffers any political consequences. We'll just pretend like business of 2020 was just all Trump related. And now that he's gone, we can restore some semblance of freedom, you know, meticulously managed, doled out in appropriate portions, but uh, some semblance of relief, I suppose. And I was reading this piece by uh, Joan Williams over at Spiked about how the lockdowns in the UK have ravaged the working class. And she goes through the uh, different areas of life, not dissimilar to the U.S. I think her her uh, opening sentence is uh, right on the mark. Coronavirus might discriminate by age, but lockdown discriminates by class. Yes. And unfortunately, things are becoming more stratified during this uh, government centric expansion uh, housing, she talked about uh, the rich worrying about the tax implications of their home office while the working class are trying to get on and uh, children are locked in their homes. The, the playgrounds are shut down. So children are cramped in in the house, nowhere to play. Obviously, schools are locked down other than those for those who have choice to send their kid to a private school. Same things we see here. And, um, you know, she reminds us uh, you're talking about unemployment in the area of seven and a half percent in Britain. I mean, it's still almost seven percent in the United States and sort of in the lockdown, big blue states higher than in the more light touch red states, of course. So I'm just trying to think about uh, the implications of the lockdown policies and what the response is and where people can look for, well, a role model to some extent. And I came across the story of Tony Roman who is the uh, proprietor of Basilicos Pasta y Vino in Huntington Beach, California. He posted uh, this video discussing how Basilicos has stayed open from the beginning to present, never abided any of the lockdown strictures in California, and has uh, taken on all comers, including all the various alphabet soup government agencies that have come to try to push them around, have issued them citations, including the Alcohol Beverage Control Board. And this was the basis of his statement on YouTube that he posted explaining why he was not showing up to his hearing before the Alcohol Beverage Control Board with his restaurant's liquor license on the line, because this is more than just about his business, keeping it open 
and not bending the knee to Gavin Newsom and his apparatchiks. Take a listen. By now, many of you may know that we have never complied with any lockdown orders since the very second they were imposed on our state, March 19th, 2020. And most say we have even been provocative in our defiance, not shy about that whatsoever, but instead doing it boldly and proudly when standing for the flag and all it represents. As stated in the first days of our fight, our stand against our government's lockdown tyranny has never been about the right to work, the right to operate a business, having to pay our bills, etc. I understand those needs, but that is secondary. Our fight has always been about something so much bigger than ourselves. Our open defiance has been about only one thing, defending American liberty, our God-given freedoms, those protected under the U.S. Constitution. Because it is always possible to recover financial and business losses, but when treasured freedoms are lost, they are gone forever. So instead of running from the lockdowns, we have always felt blessed to have an opportunity to be on the front lines of this fight against the enemies of American freedom. Since day one, we have dedicated our business as a constitutional battleground, and in doing so, we have always been willing to lay everything we have on the line, risking it all in this important battle. Yes, even our very valuable ABC license. And doing so with a great humor, too, actually. A billboard advertising the restaurant, leave the mask, take the cannoli. Nice godfather paraphrase there. Uh, he uh, said, Tony Roman, that um, we don't recognize the lockdowners' unconstitutional infringements, so we just stay open. We didn't pick this fight. That is how we fight. We don't follow lawsuits. Our action of defiance is our lawsuit. I will not leave my destiny in this conflict in the hands of courts and judges. We believe they have no standing in this fight against lockdown tyranny. We have four counts filed by the ABC against us to strip us of our license. We have a criminal case against us. We recently had OSHA show up with the police in an attempt to serve a search warrant on us. I personally received death threats from mass shamers, threats to burn our restaurant down, threats to spread viruses inside our restaurant, and even efforts by celebrities to launch boycotts against us. But we have not flinched and instead have dug in further and continue to hit back harder. We bully the bullies. And these citations he's received, uh, I mean, operating is an obvious one, but these other citations, you're endangering people, it's a, it's a, uh, uh, not a, a safe business and so on and so forth. He's never received, his restaurant has never received any citations in 21 years. But now he's got, you know, the full weight of all of the regulatory and oversight bodies trying to push him around. Although it's, it's funny. I mean, the one hand he's, he's never shut down through the entire lockdown. So this is more than a year, particularly in a place like California. And yet uh, he continues to operate uh, sort of exposing that. Uh, well, yes, they're threatening and they're citing and he, there are some implications he could suffer, but to some extent uh, it's a big paper tiger too. He uh, offered uh, this observation, which I found particularly relevant as uh, most schools are uh, celebrating uh, Black Lives Matter week this week. The governor locks up honest working people but releases murderers onto our streets. Run a small business that enriches a community and they will cut your gas and electricity. A riot, burn and loot your city and he will kiss your ass. Mm-hmm. What happened uh, last year? Riot, burn and loot your city. Uh, homicides surged by 42% during the summer and 34% during the fall. A good piece by Will Riley, by the way, in Quillette.com, too, that uh, looks at those violence, those spikes in the violence and um, particularly the timing of it and the social science on it. And, you know, it's almost um, uh, inextricably linked to uh, the attacks on police by Black Lives Matter and the move 
under pressure from Black Lives Matter to defund the police, at least partially, as we saw happen in Los Angeles and New York and Minneapolis. And the results were uh, at least historic, at least uh, for recent times, increases in violent crime disproportionately impacting black Americans as the victims. I certainly know that's the case in Chicago where murders were up more than 50 percent. Going back to Roman, uh, he uh, talked about his family and his family emigrating to this country from Illinois and what they came here for and what they will not tolerate. And now you think you can, on behalf of the tiny tyrant in Sacramento and his mini Gestapo, extort us, threatening to revoke our hard-earned, well-deserved, and very valuable liquor license because we refuse to comply with any of the arbitrary and hypocritical, childish, fear-based, anti-American mandates that is strike teams enforced selectively? Do you understand the wreckage to the country you are enabling, the young people who will never, ever have those cherished experiences of youth most of us had? even turning amusement parks into places where you herd people like sheep to their fear-induced vaccinations. The elderly, you are helping rob of their rightful golden years and precious memories with family, even stealing from them their last moments of dignity, not even allowing proper goodbyes. Immediate members of my family and ancestors before them did not come from Italy to have to deal with Mussolini wannabes who used the pandemic of fear for their own power grab. To be clear, my protest today is on behalf of all American patriots who have yet to find the same courage to fight as we do, but do share the same love for this great country and the blessings it has bestowed upon them. Well, I hope uh, those uh, who believe like Tony Roman find the courage to be more demonstrative like Tony Roman. And I, I like the fact that it's not just about schools. It's not just about businesses. He mentioned how the elderly have been treated, how those on their deathbeds have been treated. And for what? And for why? Stanford's uh, epidemi- Stanford epidemiologist John Ioannidis looked at four- 36 studies, 43 estimates, along with an additional seven preliminary national estimates, and concluded among people less than 70 years old across the world, infection fatality rates from 0. 0.00 to 0.05, 0.57, with the median of 0. 0.05 across the different global locations. 0. 0.05. the infection fatality rate less than for those less than 70 years old as um, an op-ed at uh, American Institute for Economic Research asks can one even imagine the implementation of the lockdown regulations we have experienced for the annual flu even though it's comparable of course not but that's what we have and we're going to continue to have in some form or fashion without more Tony Romans this is Dan Proft. Do you want to be a free man? Or do you want to be a slave? Do you want to be a free Grab a good man? seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. 12 months probation, 400 hours of community service. That's what former FBI lawyer Kevin Kleinsmith got in terms of a sentence for admittedly falsifying evidence submitted to the FISA court for a warrant to spy on one-time Trump foreign policy advisor Carter Page. Is that what justice looks like? 
for an answer to that question. We're pleased to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation, author of books including Wiki at War, Private Sector Public Wars. Jim, on uh, Kleinsmith, I recall George Papadopoulos going to jail for lying to the FBI. I recall a judge being unwilling to dismiss charges against Michael Flynn for allegedly lying to the FBI. What about Kevin Kleinsmith in the FBI? Well, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't comment on legal matters. But you know, I think we all recognize that part of the reason why we have punishment is so that other people know how they'll be held accountable if they do similar behaviors. I think we all recognize that tampering with evidence by a law enforcement official has got to be one of the most egregious things we can imagine because it literally undermines the integrity of the entire system of rule of law and equal protection under the law. So I can understand why people would think, well, this does not seem right. Well, thinking thinking about it at the local level, think about uh, the instances where you've had uh, police corruption, police planting evidence to implicate somebody who was otherwise innocent. I mean, that's really, to me, the comparison to Klein Smith and Carter Page. He, he essentially created evidence to implicate Carter Page that otherwise he wouldn't have been implicated. And it also not just undermines the FBI, it undermines FISA, too. I mean, I agree with The Wall Street Journal that uh, they asked the question rhetorically, how can the American people take the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court seriously when it doesn't take itself seriously? You know, I think there's also this issue of, you know, justice is blind. There may have been very well-meaning people in law enforcement agencies who thought, well, these guys are guilty, and for the sake of the nation, I have to help protect the country. That's just a political view. And you're inserting your own political judgments into the exercise of the rule of law. You are not the judge. And when you insert yourself into that process, no matter how well-meaning you think you are, you're not well-meaning. You're actually being a political actor, which is not the role law enforcement should play at all. I mean, it just speaks to the continued skepticism, to be polite about it, that a wide swath of the American people have with respect to the FBI and our intelligence agencies. And I suspect that's only going to deteriorate further over the next four years. Well, you know, I will say, because I work with a lot of those folks, I talk to them all the time. Several people on my staff have experience in operating these agencies. The people go join the FBI, go to the CIA because they want to serve their country. You know, whether it's a bad cop or people that get in these agencies and they put a political agenda first, it looks not just the American people that are getting victimized, but the good people that work in these agencies are getting victimized for something that they have nothing to do with. I understand. But, you know, if if there's no operational control of those agencies that uh, is playing the game fairly, so to speak, then how else do you expect people to react? I don't know. It's just a bad situation all the way around. And, well, you know, and Christopher Ray, frankly, hasn't inspired much more confidence than did his predecessor. You know, again, I think it's an issue. You know, we say, well, that's what we have elections for. You know, a lot of us, all of us, right, we think about, well, I'm voting on, I don't like the way they responded to COVID, or I don't like this, or I don't like that. But when you're voting for folks for national office, you're voting for the whole package. You are voting for a commander-in-chief. You're voting for essentially the person who's the chief law enforcement officer of the land. People need to think about these things. When, when they decide who they want to be president, we created the executive office to be strong because we want that affirmation of action. But there's a reason why every single person in law enforcement or in the military or that is a member of Congress or, or why they all take an oath of office. Those oaths are supposed to mean something. You have a public trust. And when you violate that, you've done something really, really wrong. And when you put leaders in charge who are indifferent to people violating the oath, that's not a positive situation. 
Uh, speaking of uh, double standards, uh, and I'm old enough to remember when there was a lot of concern about the emoluments clause, about the Trump family compromising our national security because of their business interests around the globe. And then uh, this comes to us from Michael Goodwin over at The Post. Joe Biden's younger brother, Frank, appeared in an ad for a Florida law firm for whom he consults, apparently, on Inauguration Day, no less, that um, was in furtherance of some class action lawsuit they have against a sugar company. The two Biden brothers have a long held commitment to pushing environmental issues to the forefront. The president elect has vowed to rejoin the Paris Agreement and wants to get set ambitious greenhouse gas reduction targets. Then there's Frank Biden in the ad. My brother is a model for how to go about doing this work. And again, it's about some class action lawsuit they have against Florida sugarcane companies, this uh, plaintiff's firm that Frank apparently is a consultant to. What do you think about that? Well, again, not a lawyer. You know, I will say I can't ever remember any relative Trump doing anything similar to that. I think even the Biden was upset about that. So I think that is clearly one that is appears inappropriate. Look, I mean, I think this administration should get the same scrutiny. No, it shouldn't get the same scrutiny because much of the scrutiny directed against the Trump administration was actually politically motivated, politically driven, and politically sustained. That's, that is, that's not a lawyer judgment. Well, it is a lawyer judgment because that's what lawyers have said. That's what reports have said. That's not my judgment. So I don't think we want politically motivated investigations, but the level of scrutiny and the standards should be the same for every president, this president included. Uh, before we let you go, uh, the military coup in Myanmar in Southeast Asia, this is a, a country that has had all sorts of problems, including ethnic cleansing, uh, perhaps uh, even a genocide of Rohingya Muslim minorities there, like we see the um, Uyghurs in China. Any particular interest that America should have other than in, in, in Myanmar, other than in opposing dictatorships and, and genocides? Well, I, I, I think there was always a facade of democracy in, in uh, Burma that was never really realistic. Uh, I, I think you know, it is important to recognize and affirm when there are human right, you know, serious human rights abuses around the world, and I hope we would be really, really strong uh, on that. Um, you know, Burma, I think, is you know, firmly in the Chinese orbit. It's another reminder of how... China is not a force for good in the world. China sustains, nourishes, uh, tolerates, and encourages, in order to keep Burma in its orbit, a military genocidal regime in Burma. Um, that, that's a reminder to people that China is not your friend. And for those of you who didn't uh, major in geography like Michael Jordan, uh, Myanmar is is adjacent to China. And uh, you're suggesting it's essentially a uh, a client state of uh, the Chinese communists and that they were behind it or sanctioned this military coup. I mean, there's very little difference in the relationship between China and, and the way it tries to treat surrounding states like Burma with the Soviet Union and the way it treated captured nations after World War II, like Romania, Poland, and Czechoslovakia, and Yugoslavia. It's very much the same. Again, I think it's when people keep pointing out these problems, whether it's climate change, where the world's biggest polluter is, China, or these other issues, and then they turn around and try to pretend that China is some kind of benign or you know inoffensive actor. It's not. It is the most destabilizing force in the world today. And that's just the reality of it. And the more we try to treat China like just a normal country, 
the more we kind of put our head in our shirts and ignore the reality of what's going on today. Lieutenant Colonel Jim Caravano, VP of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks as always. Yeah, that's longer than the interview. All right, thanks, man. <laughs> Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Uh, President Biden announcing uh, the ordering of more doses of vaccines, uh, saying, you know, he's got uh, ambitious goals, vaccinating 300 Americans. Yes, 300. He repeated. From 400 million order to 600 million. This is enough vaccine to fully vaccinate 300 Americans by end of the summer, the beginning of the, of the fall. But we want to make, look, that's, I want to repeat, it'll be enough to fully vaccinate 300 Americans. 300 Americans, you got it, Mr. President. Boy, that's, Seems like a lot. I, I I know there's a two dose vaccines, you know, Pfizer and Moderna, a thousand dose vaccines uh, do tell uh, on a more serious note. You have to move away from President Biden to get more serious. Bloomberg reporting uh, President Joe Biden and his top advisors have derided the Trump administration's playbook for distributing coronavirus vaccines. But so far have made only modest changes to the plan that's meeting their target pace of more than one million shots a day. For more on the vaccine distribution and how it is proceeding, we're pleased to be joined again by Sally Pipes. She is president, CEO, uh, and Thomas W. Smith Fellow in Healthcare Policy at the Pacific Research Institute. Her latest book is False Promise, uh, excuse me, False Premise, False Promise, The Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All. Sally Pipes, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thanks, Dan, for having me on. Yes. So uh, we're going from 400 million to 600 million, which um, and and Biden has problems scaling numbers there. But um, <laughs> with respect to with, yes, <laughs> I think we could do more than 300 people with those numbers. But with respect to uh, the vaccine distribution, as you have all these governors uh, saying, you know, we need more, we need more, we need more. How is it actually going both on the distribution and the implementation side? Well, so. Um there have been, as, as I think most people know, the Pfizer uh, vaccine, Pfizer-BioNTech, um, was approved for emergency use authorization on December 11th. The Moderna, uh, which I've had the first dose of the Moderna, was approved on December 18th. Um, as of right now, uh, we have um, 31 million Americans have, have received uh, at least one dose. Some of them have received two. That's about 9.8% of our population. And about 44 million doses have been distributed. We're waiting uh, the Johnson & Johnson one jab uh, vaccine is, is doing very well in final trials, and that will be up for emergency use authorization soon. AstraZeneca this month, they say, will be um, considered for um, emergency use. And then there's a new company, Novavax, uh, that has a very good vaccine, too. So there, uh, there, are, there are many um, doses that are, have been distributed. The real problem has been with the government, Dan, in both at the federal level and the state level, getting these vaccines um, out to the people. And it's unfortunate that, you know, everyone had to buy the vaccines through the government instead of, you know, they really what they should have done was allow people that had experience in distribution, whether it's CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid, 
uh, Amazon, whatever, the private sector, the private sector produced the first of these um, vaccines within uh, nine months, record speed. But the, the holdup has been in the administering and getting the vaccines by by the various um agencies and bodies. Well, and some of the states, I mean, the states have done it differently, just generally speaking. And so some of the states have actually leaned on their private health care and, pharma- and, and pharmacy infrastructure uh, and employed the CVSs and the Walgreens of the world to help with distribution. And others have tried to centralize it, make it more uh, command control at the state level or the regional level in places like New York. And so you have very, it seems to me, based on the data I've seen, uh, very different uh, experiences if you live in, uh, well, West Virginia or South Dakota or Florida versus New York. Well, exactly. West Virginia um, took over um, the head of their health uh, COVID uh, department, took over um, the, the, the vaccines, and 18% of people in West Virginia have been vaccinated. They, they went with private pharmacies and not the government. And so it's been very, very effective. And as we've seen in Florida, um, you know, there have been really no uh, lockdown. People, even people from Canada, where I'm from, have been flying on private jets to Florida um, to get uh, the vaccine because there's no limit on, on your age or whether you're in a nursing home or whatever. DeSantis just wants people to, to get vaccinated. And so we're, uh, but if you live in California, where I live, or in New York, I mean, this has just been a big bureaucratic uh, nightmare with Governor Newsom in California making it extremely difficult. And, of course, Cuomo in New York, who has now said that, you know, he's not responsible for these deaths right. in nursing homes. So, but um, we really, you know, need the private sector to get this, this going. The vaccines are there, and they were developed by the private sector. Uh, when we come back with the Sally Pipes, I want to talk uh, about more COVID-related issues, including the... Uh, Amazing disappearance of flu cases uh, this winter so far, as well as the um, nagging impacts of nagging lockdowns, uh, uh, lockdowns, that is. More with Sally Pipes, President CEO and Thomas W. Smith Fellow in Healthcare Policy at the Pacific Research Institute. Her latest book, False Premise, False Promise, The Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All. We'll be right back. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Sally Pipes. She is the president, CEO, and Thomas W. Smith Fellow in Healthcare Policy at the Pacific Research Institute. Her latest book, False Premise, False Promise, The Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All. And uh, Sally, uh, this uh, story out um, uh, some of the blogs uh, over the weekend. Only 23 Americans tested positive for flu last week compared to 14,657 cases reported last year at the same time. This according to the CDC. Um, what do you think is going on there with the relative uh, uh, scarcity of flu cases uh, as compared to normal times at this time during the year? Well, I think that one of the things is that, you know, so much of the focus has been on COVID. I mean, here in, in, in the U.S., uh, we have 26 million COVID cases. We've had 441,000 people uh, die to date. So I think COVID has overtaken the flu. And, of course, people have had access to the, the, the flu vaccine from, you know, early early last fall. So I think a lot of people were vaccinated. But maybe it is that some of the people are not getting the flu because they have COVID. So I think that's probably part of 
part of it as as well. Is is it also a case perhaps where you don't identify something that you're not testing for? Right. Exactly. Exactly. So and and so so how does that inform our understanding of the ubiquity and severity of COVID if we're just ignoring uh, other ailments that are you know part of the human condition, as it were? Well, I think one of the very frightening things, and it's being written up a lot, and I've written about it myself, and it's certainly the case in the UK, that people have been afraid to go to the, the doctor if they think they have, you know, a lump in their breast or they have a, a nagging cough they can't get rid of. So the, diag- the people are not going to the doctor and getting um, checked out for, in particular, for cancer uh, issues. So we've had a tremendous delay in the um, you know, um, identification of, of cancers. And I think this in the long run is going to be a disaster because if you have uh, a, ca- a cancer developing and you, d- you ignore getting tested for it and getting treated right away, I mean, you're, the, the impact on your long-term survival, your five-year survival rate is, is, is very poor. So, I mean, a lot of uh, doctors have been saying, you know, go to the doctor when you have symptoms, whether it's cancer, you think you have cancer, whether it's heart, you have stroke. I think this is the very frightening thing that the me- thing that the media has scared people so much that they are afraid to go and get get um, checked out for regular uh, illnesses. And I know in the UK, they're predicting that because of people delaying um, getting checked out for, for particular cancer, they see about 500,000 deaths early because people didn't get the te- didn't get diagnosed right away. So I think cancer, heart, stroke, these are things that are very serious and need to be taken care of, and yet people have been de- de- not going to the doctor because I think the media and various uh, public officials have scared people, and so they, they're afraid to you know, get checked out. Right. And, and uh, John Ioannidis, the Stanford epidemiologist, um, uh, recently surveyed about uh, three dozen um, studies in terms of the case fatality rate, the inf- or excuse me, the infant infection fatality rate, infection fatality rate for people under the age of 70. The median number that he calculated was 0.05 percent, which is not dissimilar to the flu. And as we, we think about this data coming in that we're trying to assess in real time, I mean, can could the, the question is raised, obviously, could you imagine this sort of response to the flu to uh, a, if we would have known this going in, how would you justify the policies, the response that we chose um, for the last year? How, how do you react to that? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we, we know that I mean, the stats are out there that about 85 percent of the of the COVID cases have been people age 65 and over. The bulk of the uh, the deaths have been people that have been, you know, older people living in nursing homes. And of course, uh, in New York, Cuomo sent people with COVID to the nursing home so it spread more rapidly. So, I mean, among younger people, people below even the age of, below the age of 65, and among the young invincibles, as I call them, I mean, they have really been ignoring social distancing and and the lockdowns and things and going on with their lives. And I think we've seen certainly in Florida where DeSantis has, you know, allowed the world, to, Florida, to, to carry on. And the percentage per capita of COVID cases is, is um, the same as California. And in California, we've been locked down, you know, for months. They finally just on Friday opened up the restaurants for people to be able to do outdoor dining again. So young people, I mean, if they do get it, they probably don't know they have it or they have no symptoms, they may pass it on. But but for the most part, the bulk of the COVID uh, real problem and the deaths and the very severe cases, people being on ventilators, is among the, the population 65 and over, and particularly those with, you know, several um, 
other conditions that many people over 65 would have. Biden, in a, perhaps an excited utterance, perhaps a slip of the tongue, said, you know, there's really nothing we can do to control the trajectory of the virus. Well, he's not acting like it. Uh, the CDC announcing the other day that uh, they'll require masks on all forms of public transportation, uh, that some of which had been previously left to the decisions of local officials when it came to local public transit systems. Um, but so now, in addition to airplanes, obviously, it's uh, buses and ferries and trains and subways and seaports. Um, and what impact will that have? Well, I think it'll have a tremendous impact on the fact we need to get the economy back on track. We need People need to get back to work. I mean, as I mentioned, it's not just, you know, I mentioned about cancer diagnosis, but there's also mental issues, too. There's been a lot of suicides in this country because people have been alone. They've been locked down. So the more you say, you know, you know, the, the, the mask wearing for the subway, for the trains, the planes, it's going to discourage people um, from using uh, public trans- transportation. And they've also come out recently and said people should wear, you know, two masks. Well, why yes. not 10 masks? Right. I mean, it's, you know, I find it very hard to breathe even sometimes with one with one mask if, it, if it's uh, like the N95 mask. So, I mean, there's all these government officials, I think, are just continuing to scare people. But, you know, the vaccine, vaccines are out there. The private sector produced them. And people need to be able to access them and stop, you know, Cuomo saying, you know, you'll be fined a million dollars if you jump the queue, hospitals 100,000 if you don't administer within a week of receipt. I mean, all these things, government is making it difficult. And I say, if, if people want single payer Medicare for all, which you mentioned in my book, um, look at the way the government has handled COVID. It's just a microcosm of what a disaster would be if Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez get their way. And, and are able to move this country to a complete government takeover of our health care system, as is the case in Canada. Yeah, I'm afraid we're going to achieve herd immunity much sooner than we achieve herd sanity again in this country. But that's just my view. Sally Pipes, President, CEO, and Thomas W. Smith Fellow in Healthcare Policy at the Pacific Research Institute. Our latest book, she was referencing False Premise, False Promise, The Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All. Sally, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Dan. Take care. Take care. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I uh, alluded to it at the outset, but let's be uh, more specific. It is a Black Lives Matter week in so many schools. And if you don't know what uh, that uh, instruction comprises, or uh, then you haven't really listened to this show. It's going to be um, Marxist tenants, but um, with a little bit of a identitarian spin, of course. And uh, this against the backdrop of uh, Black Lives Matter being nominated for Nobel Peace Prize. A Norwegian politician calling it a very important worldwide movement to fight racial injustice. Studies have shown that most of the demonstration organized by Black Lives Matters have been peaceful, mostly peaceful, you know, except for the autonomous zone that was created or the police precinct that was burned down or the couple of dozen murders. Mm-hmm. Mostly peaceful. Yeah. I uh, look forward to uh, the Nobel Committee conferring the honor. I sure hope they do. And uh, the committee chanting 
pigs in a blanket, fry them like bacon when Patrice Cullors is up there accepting uh, the award, the cash prize, and uh, telling the workers of the world to unite because they have nothing to lose but their chains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, here's a topic for discussion. Let me just throw it out there. Maybe uh, you or your children can raise it. Uh, in big cities in particular, where a disproportionate share of black Americans live, um, like my city, black mayor, black Cook County board executive, black police chief, black school superintendent, uh, here's the resolution. The black men and women in charge of Chicago actually don't think that black lives matter. How do I know? I look at the performance and the impact on black families. How's that for a conversation starter? Uh, Also this uh, fun write-up from uh, Michael Taub in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. He's a former speechwriter for Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Harriet Tubman, 20 bucks says Harriet Tubman was a conservative. (laughs) Now that there's uh, the renewed push to have Harriet Tubman replace Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill, fine by me. Uh, Tob uh, recalls how uh, uh, Miss Tubman became a fan of Abraham Lincoln, whose name was just removed from a San Francisco school because, you know, he's got a complicated, controversial history in America. Uh, she uh, changed her mind on Lincoln, who she was skeptical of as a friend to the blacks after he signed the Emancipation Proclamation and met with her friend and fellow abolitionist Sojourner Truth in 1864. Uh, Taub also writes that uh, Tubman probably would have been an advocate for gun rights. She carried a pistol for protection when helping fugitive slaves achieve freedom through the Underground Railroad and when acting as a Union spy and scout during the Civil War. Oh, those would be fun topics for Black Lives Matter Week at uh, the government totalitarian reeducation center masquerading as a through K-12 institution near you, wouldn't they? This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com, at Dan Proft, and at Dan Proft Show on social media. Only 47% left to go. Brutal. That was uh, one Redditor's post upon the news that Melvin Capital, Gabe Plotkin's hedge fund that had to be bailed out by Ken Griffin and Stephen Cohen, we talked about last week. Only 47 percent left to go. His reaction to the news that Melvin Capital lost 53 percent of its money under money under management in January. Um, hmm. Um, not providing any quarter for the big boys like Mr. Plotkin. Now, the bad news is this impacts Michael Jordan, and we don't like when NJ gets caught in the crosshairs here. Michael Jordan didn't have uh, GameStop shorts, but uh, Gabe Plotkin from Melvin Capital is a minority owner of the Charlotte Hornets, and he reportedly was looking to offload more of a percentage of the Charlotte Hornets to Gabe Plotkin and another minority owner or sell the team to them outright because he lost like $300 bucks last year because of the lockdowns and because the Hornets suck. 
the good news is Michael Jordan, uh, no red tag sales for MJ. No red tag sales for Michael. He's, his net worth is still like a billion and a half bucks. But we need to do whatever is required. Rewrite laws, provide protections to downside losses, anything to protect uh, Michael Jordan, of course. But the question is uh, about these Reddit renegades. Are these guys in white hats or black hats? There seem to be divided opinion. Like, for example, former SEC Commissioner Laura Unger, who offered this rather uh, aggressive comparison. It really puts a lot of um, question about the integrity of the market. Right. And it really kind of everybody's scratching their heads over this. What what should happen? What what is the right thing to do to control this or stop this? Not unlike what we saw on January 6th at the Capitol. Right. If you don't have the police in there at the right time, things go a little crazy. And that's kind of feels like what's happening with this much different, much lesser degree. It's financial harm, not personal bodily harm. But but certainly that's the same kind of you know, platform created frenzy um, that that people are operating under. And these are these are very trying times. Short selling for thee, uh, for me, but not for thee. Is that it? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by John Tammany, editor of RealClearMarkets.com, director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks and author of the upcoming book, When Politicians Panicked. Golly, I wonder what that topic is. John, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. <laughs> thanks for having me. So the Redditors who... Uh, hijacked uh, Melvin Capital, uh, they're um, akin to the rioters on January 6th? Um, I wouldn't say that. I question whether they hijacked anything. I think when it all comes out, it's going to become apparent that some pretty large investors had big stakes in GameStop. It was interesting hearing what Unger had to say. She said the police essentially need to be there ahead of time to make sure that these things don't happen in the markets. Well, let me tell you, if you can tell me when a stock is suddenly going to be bid up ahead of time, Let's go raise billions. Yeah, right. Because we can do it this morning and we will become billionaires in short order. Uh, the notion that regulation could have somehow fixed what was never a problem in the first place just speaks to the obnoxious conceit of those who operate in government. They are always last to anything by definition because if they were first to anything, they wouldn't be regulators in the first place. They'd be making money as investors. Let, let me do, let's, let's just take a step back for those who aren't in this game. The useful function that shorts play in the marketplace, explain. Yeah, they're a very useful function. Shorts take the biggest risks anyone takes in any market because when they're skeptical about shares in markets that have historically gone up, American, Americans are optimistic people. They've got, we've got great companies or markets. So shorts say the shares are going down. So what do they do? They borrow shares from an actual owner, pay them a rate of interest to borrow the shares. They enter the marketplace sell those shares. That's when they're short. They sell them. They pocket the proceeds, and then they sit very nervously, hoping that their hunch about the stock going down is correct. Because if it goes down, they then go back into the market, buy back the shares that they sold, and return them to the person they borrowed from. Their profit is the difference between when they sold and when they purchased. Now, think about what a risky move that is, because if you're wrong, and if you're wrong on GameStop, your downside is, is unlimited. It can just go up, up, up. But if you're right, your upside is very small. So it's a great trade if you can get it, but th there's a reason there are very few shorts in markets because it's such a risky trade, but they perform an essential function because they provide pricing honesty. They provide skepticism w when markets need it. And so uh, do you have any sympathy for Melvin Capital and others who got caught on the wrong side of that uh, position with GameStop? 
Of course I do. I, I don't think they should be bailed out. Now, if, if Citadel and, and, and Point 72 Cap want to save them, they should. These are private institutions that want to do it. You're always sad to see it. Again, the hedge funds, if they didn't exist, they, 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 we would have to invent them. They are, are rooting out pricing anomalies in the marketplace. And the more efficient markets are, the more the economy can grow. And let, let's point out a crucial thing in what I said about what shorts do. For them to profit they must re-enter the marketplace and buy back the shares they sold short. So people say, well, short sellers, they just sell things and they profit from it and they just, they ruin companies. No, 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 no. When short interest in the market rises, that's a signal that there's a big wellspring of buying power entering the market. Because again, for them to profit, they must re-enter the market and purchase the shares that they initially sold short. And so they're an essential, they put a floor under markets that are on their the way down too, because again, for them to complete their trade, they must be buyers. They're and, ultimately buyers always. And, and, but so what about uh, for those Reddit renegades? Do you have any problem with what they did? No, they have every right to play in a market and speculate in a market. I would just point out to them that if they think this is a trend, that if they think their buying can somehow move shares, good luck to them because history says that it's hard to make money in the stock market. As, as uh, Who's the owner of Alenia in Chicago? Nick Kikonis was a great trader yeah. before he owned restaurants. And as he said, if you're a good trader, you're wrong as often as you're right. If you're a great trader, you're right 51% of the time. So there's this assumption now we can band together and beat the big institutions. Good luck. If you think you can do that, you're very quickly going to find yourself with very little money. So talking about to the bailout of Melvin Capital, a lot of people are questioning since the money came from sort of the financial king of New York, Stephen Cohen, and the financial king of Chicago, Ken Griffin, was a call made to Robin Hood or were these uh, titans tipped off that uh, trading would be halted so that they could reposition? I mean, are those legitimate questions to ask? I don't think they're terribly legitimate, and they aren't for the simple reason that supply and demand doesn't play as big of a role in stock prices as people think. The assumption is they shut off demand so that the price wouldn't keep going up, 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 up. It's not that simple. And if it were that simple, all you'd do if you were a weak uh, company is you just buy back all your shares or you would shrink the share count total to limit supply so that the price would go up. It doesn't work that way. A share price is just a market speculation of all the dollars a company will earn in the future for all of its existence. Um, when I was at Goldman Sachs, as an example, the feeling at the firm was that, in fact, there weren't enough shares in the marketplace. And because there weren't enough GS shares being traded, it was holding the share price down because no big institution wanted to hold something that was going to be difficult to unload. You need more floats sometimes, uh, more shares being traded so that your price can go up. And so Goldman actually asked its partners to sell more shares, to do a secondary offering to increase the supply of shares in the marketplace. They felt it would be good for the, for the share price itself. So this idea that just shutting out retail buyers who aren't that big big of size buyers in the first place was going to somehow dr uh, drive up the limit the, the rise in the price of shares i think is probably a, a bit of a reach well i was talking to some traders over the weekend and you know one of the things that they said is well look uh we don't know if there was market manipulation or not but you know i mean there's uh there's been a lot of instances and they talk about it of you know uh, mysterious things that happen in 4 a.m uh, before a trading opens and it just sort of historically and the idea that the, the biggest players on the market don't have the ability to rig the system to their advantage 
is terribly naive. And frankly, a leading indicator of that, I thought last week, was Adina Friedman, the head of NASDAQ, oh, I mean, calling for more federal regulation. When does the head of NASDAQ call for more federal regulation of markets? I would say Adina Friedman done that a fair amount, and, and a lot of them have pursued more regulation throughout time. And as far as this idea that the big players can rig markets, I submit to you long-term capital. I submit to you countless... The reason there are billionaire hedge fund managers is precisely because the vast majority of hedge funds fail. And so to assume, and Melvin Capital would be an example of another one, Ken Griffin is such an anomaly. Uh, The idea, and why do you think he puts so much effort into this daily? Uh, This could be his last on a daily basis, too. It's a tough, tough business. And so this notion that the markets can be rigged, well, if they could be rigged that way, again, people have to explain to me why just about every hedge fund, every form has failed. All right. John Tamney, editor of RealClearMarkets.com, director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks, author of the upcoming book. We'll look forward to this one on the pandemic, obviously, When Politicians Panicked. John, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Tell me is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. If you're not a Reddit renegade, as we were talking about with John Tamney, uh, other ways to fight back against uh, the uh, purge, as I call it, cancel culture, as others call it. I think that's too sanitized. Uh, this uh, op-ed from Barry Weiss, formerly of the New York Times, writing in the New York Post, got a lot of play over the weekend. Uh, it's interesting that it actually got a lot of play to me, not because I really disagree with any of it, but because it is so pedestrian. The idea that uh, some of these recommendations about how to fight back against the woke culture, as she terms it, are uh, insightful, should be groundbreaking to people is a bit concerning. Ten ways to fight back. Things like remind yourself right now of following the truth of the following truth. You are free. Uh-huh. Be honest. Do not say anything about yourself or others you know to be false. Uh-huh. Stick to principles. If you're a decent person, you know mob justice is never just, so never join a mob. Right? Have we heard anything that is beyond what we learned in grade school, at least those of us of a certain generation. Set an example for your kids in your community. That means being courageous. If you don't like it, leave it. Worship God more than Yale. Make like-minded friends, then stand up for them. Trust your own eyes and ears. Use your capital to build original, interesting, and generative things right now. That's 10. Anything uh, staggering to you? If it is, I suppose that is an indication of just how far afield we have gotten, isn't it? And um, more is coming. The purge is uh, moving at a quickening pace. The latest uh, to be uh, purged from Twitter, Catholic World Report, which is a Catholic media outlet, publication of Ignatius Press. Its account was locked for hateful conduct. What was the hate speech? Get ready for it. Quote, 
from a Catholic World Report journalist, Matt Hadro. Biden plans to nominate Dr. Rachel Levine, a biological man identifying as a transgender woman who has served as Pennsylvania's health secretary since 2017 to be HHS Assistant Secretary for Health. Levine is also a supporter of the contraceptive mandate. That was the tweet (laughs) that was termed hateful and uh, resulted in Catholic World Report's account being locked. That's hateful. Describing what is right. If you uh, draw attention to something in less than a celebratory way, something that's politically sensitive like trans in less than a celebratory way, you can expect the minders to hunt you down. That's how it is. Tolerance. Man is an acceptance and celebration are all synonyms to those executing the purge. And uh, more is coming. Project Veritas on the job again. Got uh, some good uh, footage from a Zoom call that Facebook passed on to them. You know, they've got these uh, little uh, spies and some of these uh, the big uh, social media companies, which turn out to be very useful. Uh, so you have Zuckerberg, you have uh, the head of global affairs for Facebook, you have the VP of integrity, who also serves as the uh, VP of integrity, I should say. And then you also have the VP of the civil rights division, who's also the deputy general. I mean, these sound like uh, these, these titles and these positions sound like they're a part of a government body, but it's a private company. In fact, it's more dangerous, perhaps, than government bodies. This is the networked corporation takeover of a free society. They can do things that government can't do, as we've talked about before. But they're certainly excited about what uh, government has afoot, the Biden administration, that is. Mark Zuckerberg on this Zoom call. In his first day, President Biden already issued a number of executive orders um, on areas that we as a company really care uh, quite deeply about. I think that these were, were all important and positive steps, and um, I, I am looking forward uh, to, to opportunities where Facebook is going to be able to work together uh, with this new administration um, on some of their top priorities, starting uh, with the COVID response. Sure, the COVID response, but certainly not limited to that, uh, help, a la Twitter helping to uh, shut down any anything that is less than celebratory about Dr. Rachel Levin or anything with respect to biological science that... Uh, doesn't have to be followed or even acknowledged. Nick Clegg, this is a fun one. He's the head of global affairs, and he, in his uh, time on the call, talks about uh, these small d democratic rules that we'd like to follow with respect to content regulation. If only they existed. But there has been quite a lot of disquiet expressed by many leaders around the world, from the president of Mexico to Alexander Navalny in Russia, Chancellor Angela Merkel, and others saying, well, this shows that private companies have got too much power and they should be only making these decisions in a way that is framed by democratically uh, agreed rules. We agree with that. We agree with that. Mark would be very clear about that, that ideally we wouldn't be taking these decisions on our own. We would be taking these decisions in line with and in conformity with democratically uh, uh, agreed uh, rules and principles. Um, And at the moment, those democratically democratically agreed rules don't exist. We still have to take decisions in real time. You have to make decisions in real time so you have the the Facebook Supreme Court that makes decisions, literally. Supreme Court, a court-like structure within Facebook. 
they the, the small d democratly uh, d- democrat uh, uh, rules don't exist really uh you can't uh, lean on constitutional provisions you can't lean on as i've argued many times before supreme court jurisprudence on speech like brandenburg you uh don't know what the norms are with respect to due process in a free society so you just have to make it up as you go along we just have to suppress because we don't have rules the small d democrat rules that everybody agrees on is that right uh, that's a convenient cover story guy rosen is their vp of uh, integrity and uh he was there to celebrate uh, the progress that they've made uh, over the last three years and making facebook safe you know doing things like protecting elections we have a system that uh, is able to freeze commenting on threads in cases where our systems are uh, detecting that there may be a thread that has hate speech or violence sort of in the comments. These are all things we've built over the past three, four years as part of our investments into the integrity space or efforts to protect elections. Hate speech, you know, like over at Twitter when uh, Catholic journalists uh, appropriately accurately describes Dr. Rachel Levin as a biological man identifying as a transgender woman. Hate speech. And lastly, Roy Austin is the VP of Civil Rights, Deputy General Counsel at Facebook. Listen to the idea he has. First of all, sort of the basis he's starting from and the specific example he gives with respect to Facebook's Oculus, which is their VR uh, product, right? Their virtual reality product. I wonder whether or not we can use Oculus to help a white police officer understand what it feels like to be a young black man who's stopped and searched and arrested by the police. And I want every major decision to run through a civil rights lens. Every major decision through a civil rights lens. Let's uh, try to reprogram uh, police officers and others in society so that they see things through the same lens that we do. Oh, yes, the purge is quickening in pace. This is Dan Proft. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. To uh, borrow from uh, leftist Thomas Frank, what's the matter with Kansas? Well, we're going to find out. We're going to find out in uh, August of next year, 2022. Because uh, there is a statewide uh, ballot initiative, a proposed constitutional amendment to the Kansas state constitution that uh, reads as follows. The constitution of the state of Kansas does not require government funding of abortion and does not create or secure a right to abortion. That will be put to a statewide vote. The implications of that against the backdrop of a Biden administration that has quickly moved to reopen the taxpayer financing of abortion domestically and internationally. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Elizabeth Kirk. She's an attorney and lecturer at the Columbus School of Law at the Catholic University of America. Elizabeth Kirk, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. 
Sure. Thanks for having me. So uh, the implications of this uh, Kansas ballot question and um, perhaps, uh, you know, with Supreme Court action on abortion pending, the uh, model this could provide for other states in a, a, during a, a presidency and a presidential administration that's otherwise hostile to the pro-life position. Yeah, no, this is, I think, an incredibly important certainly a local issue, but it's one which I hope captures the attention uh, of the nation. Um, Certainly, uh, Kansas uh, is a a strategic point for those who would wish to allow abortion to be available, um, you know, on demand and at the taxpayer's expense. And I think what happens in Kansas will be uh, important for the whole nation. And um, how are you with that particular language? I mean, because the language on these ballot initiatives is always important, to, you know, both to, uh, uh, to 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 set the right policy, but also to minimize any confusion about what is being asked. You mean the text of the yes. amendment itself? Yes, right. The language, yeah, yeah the verbiage. I mean, yeah, I think I think what's important to note about it is that it's really a very modest amendment, right? I mean, it's not a personhood amendment. <laughs> It doesn't it's not it doesn't take any position really on whether abortion should be permitted or uh, banned. And so I think it's something from that perspective that provides a lot of common ground for people. If if you can sort of cut through what I expect to be a campaign of misinformation, I think what it does is it provides a lot of common ground for people who may not agree ultimately on the question of abortion, but really do agree on a lot of you know, sort of middle ground um, restrictions on abortion, for example. Yes, right. There's been some recent survey on that, too, that uh, younger generations, uh, Gen uh, Z and younger, have sort of complicated uh, views on abortion, particularly when when probed. Um, we've done some of this uh, on our program, too. You know, you, t- you ask the top line question, but then you start to to drill down a little bit and say, well, would it be OK if a woman had an abortion because she wanted a girl and it was a boy? And people, oh, I'm a little uncomfortable with that and so on. So sex selection, abortions and other such instances, people get a little even younger people get a little bit uh, squeamish about in terms of their views. That's exactly right. And I think it's something that's not widely known. I mean, when people again, the top line question, do you think Roe should be overturned? You know, the majority of people say no, but they don't actually know what Roe Roe held or what it means legally. And if you drill down to what people are comfortable with, um, you know, not just among the generations, but across the ideological divide, 60 percent of Democrats want significant limitations on abortion. And, you know, something like what the Kansas Supreme Court did um, opens the door for unlimited, um, unfettered access to abortion at the taxpayer's expense. And that's not what most people are comfortable with. Uh, And uh, with respect to what the Biden administration has done thus far, um, what's uh, what's your review on that? Anything that's particularly surprising? This is a uh, and, and particularly the coverage of it, uh, Joe Biden, since you're at Catholic University of America, Joe Biden is uh, in the business of redefining Catholicism, according to The New Yorker and The New York Times, by simply uh, hewing to the pro-abortion uh, position of his party. Yeah, I mean, it's, as a Catholic, I think it's it's very sad that a Catholic president doesn't embody what I think is, a, is you know, a robust um, not just teaching of the church, but understanding of, of the dignity of, of all vulnerable human life. Um, again, I mean, I think this is something that um, representatives from Democrats for Life have spoken really persuasively on, that this, this shouldn't be a party issue. This should be something that, that transcends those ideological divides. 
Um, I don't think it's any surprise what he's done. I mean, I hope, I hope nobody's surprised because he's simply following through on promises, you know, with respect to, to what he's done with respect to Mexico City and, and that sort of thing. But it, it is deeply disappointing um, that a Catholic president isn't more um, committed to the dignity of, of vulnerable, innocent life. Uh, when we come back with uh, Elizabeth Kirk, I want to get your reaction to this piece from Ryan Anderson, the Wall Street Journal, about uh, religious liberty. More with Elizabeth Kirk, attorney and lecturer at the Columbus School of Law at the Catholic University of America. Right after this. At the Dan Prop Show, we believe in protecting human life from conception to natural death. This interview is brought to you by LifeQuotes.com. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, important piece by um, Ryan Anderson, Ryan T. Anderson, over at uh, the uh, Center for uh, uh, what's the name of the group? I'm blanking on it. The Center for Public Policy and Ethics, Ethics and Public Policy, I think. Uh, Ryan Anderson writing in the Wall Street Journal about uh, religious liberty not being enough. And he goes through, as we were discussing prior to the break, Biden's decision to overturn the Mexico uh, Mexico City policy, call for the repeal of the Hyde Amendment. We've talked on this show about uh, his executive order with respect to men playing women's sports, calling uh, transgender the civil rights issue of our time. Uh, Anderson writes, Lawyers will have to make specific legal arguments rooted in the First Amendment, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, separation of powers, the Administrative Procedure Act, none of which turn on the truth of the belief seeking protection. The rest of us, however, needn't speak like lawyers. If we fail to fight back in the court of public opinion against the claim that our beliefs are, quote unquote, bigoted, we will ultimately lose even in courts of law where the soundness of our beliefs is supposedly irrelevant. If basic truths of human nature are redefined as religious bigotry, they will be excised from society in court and out. The reality is that there is a culture war in the United States and conservatives aren't the aggressors. But a strategy based only on religious liberty won't work in the long run. Americans need to figure out how to coexist peacefully on these issues. And the answer for our side isn't to forfeit the fight about the truth by pleading only to be left alone. Uh, for a reaction to that, please to be rejoined by Elizabeth Kirk, who is an attorney and lecturer at the Columbus School of Law at the Catholic University of America. And um, Elizabeth, uh, Ryan Anderson's point that, you know, the defense is often um, uh, in the case of Masterpiece Cake Shop or other such cases, you know, right to conscience, the right to believe these things. But uh, so uh, so is the case often that we don't make and we don't hear the arguments that, you know, it's not just Jack Phillips's right of conscience. He's also right on the issue. We're we're going to take the position that his uh, belief about um, uh, chromosomal science, for example, is actually the the correct. That's the truth. It's not just uh, he has a right under the First Amendment to believe that. Yeah, I thought Ryan's uh, article was was exceptional, and I'm so glad that he's making that that argument. I mean, as a lawyer, you know, I do tend to focus on the arguments lawyers make about our rights and, and but they are essentially a defensive defensive argument, right? Um, as the culture changes, as public morality shifts, we're sort of put back on our heels with with just these defensive arguments. Um, and as that 
shift happens, we, we just are in the position of begging courts to like, please let us do <laughs> what we've always done. Um, but, but that becomes more difficult as those views are equated to racism and, or other forms of really um, abhorrent bigotry, right? So those, those religious freedom arguments are not going to be, I think, ultimately successful in the long run. And so we do have to do a better job of explaining publicly why we think our beliefs are not excuses for bigotry, but rather embody particular truths about whether it's the human person with abortion, whether it's about marriage, um, the connection between sex and children, all of these, all of these things that we think um, are true, not just for particular religious believers, but for everyone. Um, we need to do a better, better job of, of defending those. So one area that I have worked in and, and written about is with respect to child welfare, the, the case pending before the Supreme Court right now, Fulton, um, dealing with the rights of Catholic foster care and adoption agencies to continue to serve uh, as they have done for centuries um, without violating their beliefs. And again, I mean, I think any organization, whether secular or religious, that's involved in child welfare has some sort of substantive view about what is good for, for children, right? And right. so um, we can't just like fall back on our religious liberty. We have to say, well, actually, what we're doing in, in this space is we think good, and, and here's why. Um, in a pluralistic society, there's always going to be a variety of beliefs, and, and maybe in the end, religious liberty is, is all we can do. But I think we, I think we do have to continue to make those substantive arguments as Ryan so movingly and persuasively um, articulated in that article. Yeah, it seems like he learned the lesson from Obergefell that a lot of uh, other conservatives, uh, Christians, uh, people of faith did not, which is uh, precisely what he said, that, that if we're just falling back on religious liberty and we're going to accept the characterization of it as bigoted, well, yeah, you know, we start from their premise, then you're going to lose. You'll have somebody like an Anthony Kennedy write an op-ed masquerading as a Supreme Court opinion to get at that, quote-unquote, bigoted view or that bigoted language. Yeah, and I think it affects us in other ways as well. I mean, I, I think it was Justice Alito and Obergefell who, who made the point that, you know, proponents of, of traditional marriage in Obergefell tried to say, like, marriage has this inherent connection to children, right? And And... I think it was Alito who said, we've severed the connection between marriage and children a long time ago with contraception and abortion and, you know, other forms of reproductive technology. So that ship has sailed long ago. And and when we don't make these substantive good arguments, um, we really do hamper our ability to continue to make coherent, compelling arguments in the public square. Uh, another example of this I was just uh, referencing before you joined us is this um uh, freezing of the Catholic World Report Twitter account for uh, properly, I mean, just accurately describing uh, Dr. Rachel Levin as a biological man identifying as a transgender woman who was, you know, leveled up by Biden to be the uh, assistant secretary at HHS for for describing her, uh, him as a biological man identifying as a transgender woman. They got their account frozen by Twitter for hate speech. Yeah, I mean, that's worrisome for many reasons, again, regardless of how you feel about the underlying question, um, the, the, um, the, <laughs> the, free, the chilling effect that that has on, on ability to speak, especially in a venue like Twitter, where, you know, people are not prone to double checking everything they say and that sort of thing. So these things have profound consequences beyond uh, their, their original context. Yeah, I mean, it's, it seems like uh, we should learn the lesson from the left. They they didn't leave any uh, avenue of, of of argumentation or 
pursuit of their agenda uh, vacant to those who disagree with them. So it's courts of public opinion and courts of law, as well as, of course, uh, electoral venues as well. It just seems to stand to reason. I don't know why conservatives have been so lethargic uh, on the court of a public uh, within the court of public opinion. I think Anderson is right there. Elizabeth Kirk, attorney and lecturer at the Columbus School of Law at the Catholic University of America. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This interview in support of the sanctity of human life has been brought to you by LifeQuotes.com. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Uh, you know, Valentine's Day right around the corner. I figured, uh, let me look to uh, Kamala and Doug, uh, America's new power couple, fun couple. Well, the Funt and her husband, VP Kamala Harris and uh, Doug something or other, her husband. Huff Post has compiled 11 wonderful quotes that capture their love. I want to share some of those with you. Just uh, signal when you're ready to hurl. Uh, Doug, the moment I met Kamala, I knew I was in love, not just because of who she is, the warm, funny, compassionate woman who grounds our family, but also because of the deep resolve with which she fights for the causes she believes in. I love uh, quotes between couples, political couples that sound like something that a speechwriter or com shop or that speechwriter wrote or somebody from the com shop put together. Uh, Kamala, my best friend set up, set us up on a blind date and she said, just trust me, just trust me. You know, she wanted me to just kind of go into it and she said, don't Google him. But I did. Insert cackle. Uh, I'm pursuing her after the first date, Doug. I didn't want it to end. And so the next morning I pulled a move of emailing her with my availabilities for the next four months, including long weekends. Doug, we're rushing this a little bit, aren't we? And I said something like, I'm too old to hide the ball. You're great. I want to see if we can make this work. Here's when I'm available next. And I guess it worked. Mm -hmm. On her dropping out of the presidential primary without uh, having a vote cast for her. (laughs) She made that decision and I would have supported her whatever she decided. But I'm not a political advisor. I'm her husband. And so my role was to be there for her, to love her, to have her back and to talk it through and to help her. Gosh, I could just I'm, I'm falling in love with Doug all over again on um Watching her work. Imagine working from home with Kamala Harris during a pandemic and all the other issues going on. She just works hard and she's relentless. It's just incredible how much she does. And I'm looking over and she's looking back and she goes, what are you doing, Dougie? You working? And I say, yep. Yes, honey. Magical. Uh-huh. Um, on uh, her relationship with his ex-wife. Oh, this should be. To know Cole and Ella is to know their mother, Kirsten, is an incredible mother. Kirsten and I hit off, hit it off ourselves and our dear friends. She and I became a duo of cheerleaders in the bleachers at Ella's swim meets and basketball games, often to Ella's embarrassment. We sometimes joke that our modern family is almost a little too functional. I mean, just could you just not eat them up? Oh, um, a related note. Uh, celebrate the one-year anniversary of this tweet. 
Jesse Smollett is one of the kindest and most gentle human beings I know. I'm praying for his quick recovery. This was an attempted modern-day lynching. Uh, two-year anniversary, I'm sorry, not one-year, two-year anniversary. This was an attempted modern-day lynching. No one should have to fear for their life because of their sexuality or color of their skin. We must confront this hate. Kamala Harris. Remember just a couple of years ago, she was just a race-hustling cipher in the Senate. Now look at her. She's a race-hustling cipher in the VP's residence. And with Dougie in tow. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at uh, danprofshow.com, at danproft, and at danproftshow on social media. These are um, interviews that are, are difficult to do, but when parents speak out, uh, we feel obligated to amplify their message. Ten days ago, we spoke with Chris Buckner, the father of Dylan Buckner from uh, Glenbrook North, who committed suicide during these lockdown policies, and, and Mr. Buckner and his wife speaking out on behalf of restarting sports again be, because sports were so important to Dylan or so important to so many other kids as a school generally. And uh, so the situation is with Lisa Moore, who uh, we talked about a bit last week after she appeared on Harris Faulkner show on Fox News to discuss the death of her son, Trevor. And we're pleased to be joined now by Lisa Moore. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, so just t- tell us about your 18-year-old son, Trevor. Boy, how long do you have? Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> My son, Trevor, was awesome. He was a total extrovert, not happy unless he was performing of some sort at Seneca. He was a freshman at University of Illinois when he took his own life in the dorm. At Seneca High School last year as a senior, he was the president of his class. He was president of National Honor Society. He was the captain across, the crap, captain of the speech team. He was the drum major. He played the trombone. He was in choir. He had an awesome voice. He was the lead in the spring musical, which, thank goodness, he was able to perform. It was the weekend before they closed the schools for COVID. Numerous clubs. The list is endless. He is a sophomore year high school. He was a representative at the Hobie, which is an honor government camp. Uh, His junior summer, he went to Boys State, which is also an honor. So he met kids from all over. He was awarded the Daughters of American Revolution Award. He was the only boy in LaSalle County. It's it's interesting because this sounds very much like our conversation with Chris Buckner about Dylan. You know, Dylan was a standout athlete, also a standout student. Your son, a standout student, a standout in theater and the arts, and he's involved in all these activities. And it's the same dynamic. It's that they were making those interpersonal connections that mean so much in life, particularly for young people finding their way. And for all that to be taken away so quickly, it's not people shouldn't be surprised that some of these kids, no matter how well they're doing in so many fronts, um, are are lost when that happens. Exactly. 
And Trevor also was an athlete. He was, you know, like I said, he was on the cross country team that made it right, to state right, right. many times. Right. He also was uh, looking so looking forward to his senior year cra- his track season. He was a pole vaulter. He made it to state his sophomore year, which he PR'd at state, which is rare. He did not make it his junior year. He missed by three inches. That was just devastating to him. So, boy, he was so gung-ho for his senior year. He could not wait to get back jumping again and make it down to state and just, you know, do his best and all that. So when that was cut, it was hard. It was very hard for him. So what was the situation when he moved on from Seneca High School to U of I? Trevor wanted to go to a bigger school. He really did. He was very hopeful to be in the marching band. He was planning on being in the marching band at U of I until he found out that it was just Zoom, you know, Zoom practicing. And he's like, Mom, I don't want to stand and practice my trombone to a computer. You know, he wanted to do it for the camaraderie of the band and just the excitement and just all of those things. So he did not do that. Um, He moved into his dorm. You know, he was positive. He was going to give it a try. He wanted to do it, you know, and everything. But he didn't have a roommate, which we found out after a few days because his roommate was coming from India. And obviously he couldn't come because of COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, That was hard, you know. So he was starting to, you know, when you're a freshman in college, sometimes your roommate is your ends up being your best bud or at least someone to hang around with all the time. Well, he didn't have that. Um, Everyone had to wear masks. But the two classes he did have a person, he was fortunate. I mean, they were upper-level history classes, so everybody that was in it knew each other pretty much, except, you know, he was a freshman. Plus wearing a mask, plus sitting six feet apart, you don't forge relationships like that. It was very difficult for him. Uh, you had to sit six feet apart at tables to eat, with your mask on just off to eat. And there's, they sat outside. The tables were outside until it got too chilly in the morning for them to eat breakfast outside, and then they brought him in. There was, you know, no clubs, no activities in person. Everything was via Zoom, so that's another thing hard to forge new relationships when you're just meeting someone over the computer, and it was all very impersonal. However, they COVID tested them three times a week. They all had to be COVID tested, so they knew if anyone had the virus or not, you know, it, but they did not loosen the chains on anything. It's just, it was hard. He was trying his best. You know, we talked to him all the time, myself, by his dad and siblings, and he kept trying and, you know, he would try to meet people and try to get out there, but it was very hard. And when you're alone all the time and then alone in his room and there was only three floor meetings, since he was there so in eight weeks three floor meetings and they were via zoom too so this uh, wrongful death suit that you filed against governor pritzker what's the uh, message you're sending the governor well i don't think exactly a wrongful death suit in those words per se i just would like to know why he just made the decisions he made so quickly without any evidence-based you know theory behind it why he just closed everything boom, the, the schools and negated just the kids' feelings and didn't didn't see forward how all this was going to happen with this COVID isolation, with this, the kids being depressed and the, just the mental changes. And I don't think we've seen the worst of it. I think the PTSD from all of this with all these kids, it's going to be horrific. Kids are finding other things to do when they're not involved in 
their normal activities and they're not always making the best decisions. You know, I've heard stories of drinking and just different things that are going on that wouldn't probably be had the kids been busy doing what they're supposed to be doing in school. Your uh, conversations with other parents and families uh, at Seneca High School about, uh, you know, what's happening there just within your universe of, of Trevor's friends and and uh, and those moms and dads that you speak with? Oh, well, regarding Trevor, Trevor and what happened with him, everyone was devastated, shocked, very surprised. I mean, and then the realization hit, if this could happen to Trevor, it could happen to any kid because because of who Trevor was and the impact and just everything he left with anybody, anyone that met him once remembered him at his services. I think I counted 12 uh, high schools that had attended different high schools. And some of these kids had only met Trevor once, maybe at a cross meet or at a speech meet, but his impact on their lives was enough that they wanted to come show their respects. Parents are worried. Parents are very worried about their kids. They're, and this is helping them be more alert, be more attuned to their children's, you know, behaviors and just any differences they're seeing in their kids. I tell every parent to helicopter the heck out of your kids now. Just watch, watch for anything, be aware. You know, Trevor and I were very close. We talked about everything. And, you know, when I asked questions, it's not like I didn't. I asked questions. He just did not share the very end how sad he was well one thing is what you were describing in terms of all those kids and families represented at his funeral service that's a great testament to your son um so that's that's that, that, that you know it's a great indication of the legacy that he leaves behind and i hope uh, parents are listening to you and unfortunately what you have to share and we certainly appreciate your time in sharing that as well. And good luck with your effort to get some accountability from the governor. Nobody else has been able to do so, so maybe you can. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I appreciate you speaking with me. And, yes, I just I just plead to the parents to watch your children because I don't want any other family to go through this. This is horrific. This is the rest of my life. I wake up every morning and it's just a realization that, that boy is not going to come walking back into my room, singing, dancing, being his silly Trevor. And I know he's reaching out through me. He's telling me, Mom, there's kids that are still sad in their dorm rooms. They don't know what to do. There's kids sad at home. You know, they're missing their friends. They're missing their sports. Please, Mom, help them all. And I am. I'm Trevor Strong. Absolutely. Uh, Trevor's mom, Lisa Moore. Lisa, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Sort of a remarkable reaction from uh, St. Andrew of COVID-19, our General Dwight D. Eisenhower of the COVID era. That would be Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, reacting to the report that uh, nursing home deaths in New York State may have been undercounted by more than 50 percent. This from the Democrat state attorney general. Here was the reaction. A third of all deaths in this nation are from nursing homes. New York State, we're only about 28 percent only, but we're below the national average in number of deaths in nursing homes. But who cares? 33, 28 died in a hospital, died in a nursing home. They died. Right. Who cares? Now's not the time to be obsessing about data or pointing fingers. Isn't that right? Francis Menton, he is the Manhattan contrarian, and he joins us now. Francis, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Great to be here. Who cares? You know, what is this uh, concern about uh, nursing homes versus long-term care facilities versus restaurants and bars? I mean, it's not like we're making policy based on where we see the highest incidence of death, Francis. Uh, You're talking about my governor here now. I know. You better be careful. Yeah. Oh, I know. St. Andrew Uh, of COVID. I know. Of course, the issue that he totally hoped you missed in that little uh, audio clip that you just played and that the attorney general of New York, uh, who's just as uh, creepy, by the way, (laughs) and as politicized, Mm -hmm. uh, is actually bringing out, is that that 28 percent of deaths in nursing homes in New York uh, has been an an intentionally suppressed number. It's undercounted and it's probably well over 33 percent in New York. And, the, and, of course, the other thing that he's missing is that uh, what his health commissioner did under his authority and direction is ordered people, as the old people, as they recovered from COVID in hospitals to be put into nursing homes, which transmitted the disease within the nursing homes to the most vulnerable population. So, so uh, who cares where they died? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of reason to care about what Cuomo did. Well, here's the other thing he's leaving out to. Okay, who cares where they died? How about just the aggregate number of people who died? And how does New York State compare to the rest of the nation there, Governor? Uh, yes, well, we're number two. New Jersey's actually worse, but but New York uh, is number two in deaths per million, as you probably know, slightly well, under New Jersey, but far worse than the states that often get criticized for being open, like uh, Florida <clears throat> yeah. or Texas or South Dakota. And by the way, Restaurants are completely closed. In my neighborhood, it's so pitiful to walk around at night. The temperature last night was 22 degrees outside. I guess Chicago was probably even colder, but 22 is plenty cold and small numbers of people at restaurants outside with a heat lamp bundled up at Parkas trying to eat outside. It's so sad. Well, and sad. And on the school front as well, I mean, the the uh, uh, effort to uh, press to to get schools reopened to give the appearance that you're still going to have a school year in New York, like we're seeing in Chicago, like we're seeing in L.A., where there's uh, even if you were to have uh, in-person schooling resumed, there's so much fear that has been engendered, uh, as uh, Carol Markowitz has written about in The New York Post, that you basically have washed away this school year, too. We're hoping, uh, Carol, a, a, a parent of New York City public school children, hoping to get back uh, in the fall. That's the best we can hope for. There is actually some in-person going on in the New York City schools, but it's, again, sad and pitiful. 
I think it's only in the elementary schools. It's only a couple of days a week. So that some kids go this day and some kids go that day and other kids don't go at all. And the high schools don't go at all. And it's a very complicated thing that you can't even figure out. But yes, it's the functional equivalent of a totally lost year of school. And uh, on the vaccine distribution front, too, since we're talking about somebody who has uh, written a book on uh, management and uh, managing in a crisis, that would be Governor Cuomo. Um, we see, uh, you know, New York uh, has had been beset by all sorts of bureaucratic impediments to the ready distribution of the vaccine dosages that have been received. And then this story, again, in the post over the weekend, a 66 year old at a nursing home. I know who cares where they die. I got it. But a 66 year old at a nursing home was denied the vaccine and she subsequently died from COVID-19 because she, at the, she was not a permanent resident of the nursing home. So while they were distributing the vaccines, even though she was 66, she didn't get the vaccine. I mean, again, making this overcomplicated anywhere you have vaccines and you have somebody over the age of 65, let's just get it done. Uh, should be the protocol, it seems. Well, uh, Dan, you're talking to a 70 year old here. And I'm trying to be all over it. My wife is all over me to try to get me vaccinated. I've got my name on 10 different lists. I'm calling people all day long. No appointments available. And I think today, because of the snow, whatever appointments they had have been canceled. and Everything's backed up even further. That's that's the word here from New York from a 70-year-old. Yes, uh, some frustrating times on so many fronts, uh, including... um with respect to the Biden presidency, I know that uh, all things are right again with the world now that President Trump is gone. But uh, you wrote at your blog, a Manhattan contrarian, about the Biden presidency and uh, what we've seen from the first 10 days and what that tells us about exactly who's in charge. Yes, I've actually had several posts on that, but I think my favorite one is the one that's titled The Dopes Have Taken Full Control, <laughs> which Uh, which I would call a fair summary of it. I mean, this blizzard of executive orders, and I've seen a number 40 bandied around of executive orders, and I've actually tried to read some of them, and some of them are are the equivalent of 30 or 40 pages of text if they were typed out on eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper. But... uh, Yes, I think your your phrase is about right, that if we just issue enough orders, we will achieve perfect uh, order and fairness and justice in the world. I guess maybe not tomorrow, maybe next week, <laughs> week after. And, and, but, and also the, the disposition, too. I mean, the executive orders speak to, to something and, and what you are – the personnel choices speak to something. And the commentary from uh, his quarter speaks to something, too, which is – uh, we have control. There's no need for compromise. There's no need to dither. Let's run roughshod over our opposition. Uh, I, I would be 100 percent in agreement with that statement. Now, the particular uh, blog post of mine that you were referring to, uh, that post focuses on a couple of the executive orders rather than all 40, because how much can you do in a blog post? But I stuck with a subject that I write more about and know more about, which is Uh, what they call climate change and what I call energy policy or the suppression of energy policy. And in in that area, it's just one complete nuts thing after another that they're going to close down uh, drilling on federal lands. They're going to close down pipelines. Uh, They're going to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord, which commits the United States to shrink its usage of energy and commits 
the third world, which is 90% of the world's population, China, India, Africa, on and on, to nothing. They, their energy usage, their fossil fuel usage is clearly going to increase greatly over the next four years and eight and 10 and 20. The China agreement commits them to nothing. They're not going to agree to anything. So we are in the process now of great restrictions on our economy and impoverishment of the American people for nothing. He is Francis Menton. He is the Manhattan contrarian. Francis, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck uh, getting a vaccine appointment out there. Thank you so much. Is it any wonder? Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Well, this has been a story that has been um, rather muted, actually. Golly, I wonder why. The Lincoln Project and its co-founder, John Weaver, was a longtime political consultant out of Texas. He was part of the McCain gang that that serves as at least part of the core group of the Lincoln Project. Steve Schmidt being another one. We've talked about it a little bit on this show, but um, uh, need to talk about it a little bit more now that Steve that uh, John Weaver, I should say, has been outed as someone who was attempting to prey on young men, exchanging jobs for well physical relations. Somebody who uh, tweeted about this and, um, in, in part, got the ball rolling with respect to exposing John Weaver is our next guest, Ryan Gerdusky, uh, excuse me, host of Tack Right Now and author of They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created the National Populist Revolution. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Dan. So, um, yeah, the John Weaver story, I mean, give us your perspective on it since you were uh, as you wrote about it, the I American Conservative. The yeah, you, yeah, as you broke the story. Yeah. I was the first writer to break the story. So um, I, John Weaver followed me on Twitter uh, back in late May of 2020. I didn't really know much about him, didn't really care, but he followed me. And within a few hours of him following me, I was receiving direct messages from young men um, telling me to be on the lookout for John Weaver. I didn't, uh, I, I'm much older than I look. I'm 33, but I look like I'm in my, probably my mid twenties, according to some people. So they assumed that I was going to be preyed on by John Weaver. So they were trying to give me the warning. So I said, what do you mean? We had a conversation. I started speaking to other young men and tried to start pursuing the story for a different outlet other than the American conservative, where you read the first story that we broke on January the 11th. Mm-hmm. Um, I started building sources um, and getting the story ready to work with another outlet and a, and a co-writer on it. Um, and by August, we'd had enough to sit there and go forward with it because there's so much legal liabilities with publishing a story like this, especially the Lincoln Project. They're all lawyers. Right. And we needed some rock-hard evidence. And as we were getting ready to go public with the story, and we were, we, you know, we were calling a lot of people asking, you know, what do you know, what do you know, what do you know? Uh, it was going around that I was working on this. Well, members of the Lincoln Project found out and we're warning John Weaver. So on August 21st, I believe, John Weaver had a quote-unquote heart attack and went missing from, he was, you know, at a ho- he said he was at a hospital. I called the hospital in the area at the time. 
No one had a record of him being in the hospital. Um, and within that week, every one of the young men who said they would come over and go on the record said they can't do it anymore. They were too afraid. So I don't know what happened, and I still never got a response really from them after that happened. Um, well, so these, are, by, by the way, her, I mean, you, you, in addition to lawyers, I mean, these are a bunch of guys who also do damage control as part of their living. Right. Oh, they're very powerful men. Make no mistake of it. These are very, very powerful men with a lot of media connections who could build someone up and tear someone down. I get why. And, 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 and hundreds of thousands or millions of sycophantic Twitter followers who would defend them off a cliff. Right. Just because they, so just because they hate uh, Trump, like the Lincoln projects raise on Trump. Trump. So they yeah. believe that these people are good. Right. So by January, I, the story, I had so many sources, but no one would speak on the record. Literally no one. It was, I wanted to scream. It was so, it was so awful. So one night, uh, Steve Schmidt, I believe it was tweeted that they were keeping record of everyone who ever worked in the Trump administration. Well, you know, that's a lot of like 20 year olds who are trying to make a life for themselves. And those are a lot of people trying to actually do something for themselves and, and, you know, build a career. And these are men who worked for George W. Bush and defended his war in Iraq and, and defended all the wars that John McCain wanted to advocate for. And these are, you know, these are people who on a policy thing, some disagreements from me, but I didn't sit there and say, let me ruin your life. So I tweeted on January 10th, I tweeted, Maybe I should be talking about the founding member of the Lincoln Project who wanted to exchange jobs for sex. Uh, his wife would probably want to know. Mm-hmm. So and I, I, I tweeted that without being able to actually say it was John Weaver because I couldn't have a source on record. And thank God I tweeted that. And one young man who was a liberal came forward and said, I'll say because it happened to me, it was John Weaver. And the minute that he came forward, I could let everything that was in on background and off the, and not off the record, but not without, without a second uh, name, but with all the tweets and all the text messages and all the DMs that I had from John Weaver from all these young men, I could let them all out. Ryan, and let, let, let's, wrote, let, right, let, let's hold it there and find out, okay, when you could let it all out, then what happened? we got to take a break. Ryan Gurdusky. Host of TAC right now, author of They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created the National Populist Revolution. Stay tuned. The other side of the break, we'll hear how the rest of the story proceeded. We'll be right back. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Ryan Gurdusky, host of TAC Right Now and author of They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created the National Populist Revolution. And we're talking about the story that he broke of Lincoln Project, co-founder John Weaver, Lincoln Project, that big outfit that was running all those anti-Trump ads positioning themselves as a bunch of Republicans who, you know, couldn't stomach Trump because he's unprincipled and he's a danger to the Republicans, so on and so forth. Kellyanne Conway's husband, John Weaver, Steve Schmidt, Rick Wilson and others uh, got great profile from the D.C. press corps for obvious reasons, because they share a hatred of Trump. And uh, Ryan Gurdusky broke the story of John Weaver being a sexual predator. And he was telling us how that all transpired right up until the point where somebody came forward and said on on Twitter this happened to me, and then uh, the whole thing blew, and then I blew came open. Forward. 
yeah, I was able to sit there and actually release all the text messages and emails I've had from John Weaver for months and months and months and wrote the story. A victim then came out and also wrote the story on uh, his own platform. And uh, he came out two days after I did. Um, and then, I mean, on t- between my story, his story, and the men online who were just releasing their own information, it had to be close to 100 young men. The Lincoln Project in that time, all they, they didn't respond to anything. They didn't say anything. All they did was they just took John Weaver's picture off their website. Mm-hmm. And they kind of hoped it went away. Then that Friday, on a Friday news dump where no one's reading the news, Axios writes a complete nonsense puff piece about John Weaver that he's gay and struggles with the fact that he has a wife and daughter and that all these messages he deemed were appropriate. It's and you know what, Lincoln Project – they didn't say a word about it. Finally, the New York Times comes forward, and they did great reporting. They had 21 men who start at the age of 14 years old hmm. going into even deeper things. This wasn't just somebody who had an inner demon and was you know, on his second marriage to a woman but was gay. This wasn't somebody who was just having sexual proclivities. This was somebody who was using the trust he built from the institution he belonged to, the Lincoln Project, to prey on young men and tell them, I will give you a job if you give me sex. And he did it over and over and over again. He did it over 100 times in a five-year period. Bill Cosby would blush at how John Weaver acted and, and would have acted. And, and and just so we're clear, I mean, you, you just mentioned it, but I want to put an, an underline there, uh, underage boys. Well, the one was the 14 years old. I don't, I do, according to the New York Times story, they did not meet, but he would constantly write, message him and say, when do you graduate high school? Well, and, how, and how, when do you turn 18? When do you graduate high school? So he wasn't trying to allegedly, according to the story, he wasn't trying to sleep with him at 14. He was waiting for him to turn 18 so he could sleep with him. Yeah, that's uh, grooming so, at 14 is. Uh, uh, that's yeah, grooming. That, yeah. He was running a grooming operation, which was the Lincoln Project was, and they were completely silent until they were outraged all of a sudden. For three weeks, my story has been out. They didn't say a word until the New York Times story came out, and now they say they're overwhelmingly angry. Give me a freaking break. Mm. They were complicit. And by the way, this was the biggest – working on this story for the last seven, seven months that I've worked on it, this was the biggest open secret in Washington, D.C. I've never done a story on sexual harassment before, so I called one of my friends who is a journalist who's done many stories on sexual harassment. And I said, how do I approach somebody who has been a victim of sexual harassment? I need to know, you know how to act. I said, they've been sexually harassed by a well-known political consultant. And he said, oh, John Weaver? They, <laughs> everyone knew. Sure. Everyone, everyone, everyone knew. Another very well-known household name, Republican conservative who hates Trump, was asked to be part of the Lincoln Project and responded, I will never do anything with John Weaver because he's a creep. Well, I think this everyone is, in Washington, D.C., everyone knew. So I, the idea that they did not know is a complete lie. It's not, I mean, it sounds uh, not dissimilar to uh, Ronan Farrow's work with uh, Harvey Weinstein. You know, it took one or two, and then the floodgates open. Yeah, oh, it was. But, and that's exactly what it was. By the way, this is not my story as much as it's there. These, these young guys, these young guys who were willing to sit there and go say something. Because so many weren't, because they were all afraid, and rightfully so, they were afraid. And their names, you know, they're not famous people. They're not people who are going to, you know, be on the cable news. If you Google them forever, their name is going to be attached to this. 
And that's a lot to ask for somebody. So I give them tremendous amount of credit. And this isn't, you know, like John Weaver was going to be confirmed to be a Supreme Court judge and you sat on the story for 40 years. This is not he's running for president. All of a sudden you remember something from 20 years ago. This is just, I mean, this is in the last five years. This is up to the summer when he knew I was reporting on it. He knew I was working on it because Molly Junk Fast, who was on the Daily Beast, was calling friends of mine asking how the story can get killed. Interesting. So, so they, everyone, everyone knew that this was happening, they said, and they uh, were lying, and they were covering it up. And the and by the way, the Lincoln Project co-founders were on MSNBC and CNN seventeen times in three weeks after my story came out. Guess how many times they asked them about John Weaver? Zero. Zero. Right. And 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 Molly Junkfest, Daily Beast. You know these otherwise uh, vanguards of uh, the Me Too movement. She's on such. the advisory board. She's on the advisory board of the Lincoln Project. Uh huh. And uh, I mean, this, this is a joke. This is the media cup. The the, well, well, the, but, the sorry. Go ahead. I, I'm sorry. So 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 the New York Times covers it. You know, one of the other things I've been surprised about this is I've read some some uh, about it before speaking with you today is it, it hasn't really been picked up that much by conservative media even and talked about. No, it did. I mean, well, when I started when I sent that tweet out, redstate.com did an article on my tweet and then Daily Wire, Daily Caller, Breitbart has like three articles on it today. Uh, they all okay. I mean, they all are covering it right now. Yeah. And listen, and, and God bless Laura Ingram. Laura Ingram had me on the day after my story came out. She's the only one. No one. I mean, this is probably the second interview I have ever done on John Weaver. And I've been doing this story for three weeks besides Laura Ingram. No one. I'm sorry. The Washington Post also asked me for a statement. So this is the third interview. But besides the Washington Post and Laura Ingram, no one had questions. No one. It was like screaming into a void. I was huh. saying this is a major sexual predator running a multi multi million dollar organization that is in the media day in and day out, and none of you care. Well, and and your point too about uh, those at the Lincoln Project who were all in this small universe of political consultants and operatives, and as you say it, the worst kept secret in in the, inside the Beltway. That was they, talking about this since the year nineteen ninety nine. And so the question. Carl Rove mentions in nineteen ninety nine. Ryan Gerdusky, uh, great reporting, good for you. Host of Tech right now, author of They're Not Listening: How the Elites Created the National Populist Revolution, and also. Uh, check out his work on uh, John Weaver and, uh, at American Conservative, included AmericanConservative.com, The Lincoln Project Predator, which I'll tweet out. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Listen to podcast of the show at DanProfShow.com. Welcome back to the show. Uh, closing out with just um, noticing something uh, over the last couple of days, the focus of the attacks from the places like the New York Times and the White House Coronavirus Task Force on Governors Ron DeSantis and Christy Nome of uh, South Dakota. The White House Coronavirus Task Force recommending that Florida should close down its bars and restaurants. <laughs> DeSantis saying no. Because, as you heard on this show last week when he was on with Maria Bartiroma, lockdowns don't work. But why would they do that? Because DeSantis is embarrassing them and all the dumb socialist lockdown governors. Plus, they're trying to soften him 
in advance of 22, his reelection to governor of Florida, so they don't have to deal with him in 24 as perhaps a leading contender for the presidency, particularly as Trump is already making noise that he may not be so interested in 2024 after he's acquitted next week's impeachment 2.0 trial. A boy, DeSantis would be center cut for Trump to support and throw his base of support behind. Could be something. And remember, DeSantis has the pedigree, Harvard Law, uh, the polish and the Trump attitude, particularly toward the press, but with, you know, I think, better command of the language at minimum. Despite the big government press corps vilification efforts as well, his approval rating is still north of 50 percent. So enter the White House Coronavirus Task Force to single him out. Hey, fall in line. Just like the Western press spent all that time attacking Sweden for taking a light touch approach until they began to fall in line. Same thing with Christy Noem in South Dakota, who is a very attractive candidate, potentially national candidate. She's done a wonderful job, but that means the New York Times has to go after her, made her the subject of a recent video to attempt to, again, recast how she has performed with respect to COVID. And Robert Wright uh, took up her defense, who apparently is a um, uh, he uh, was a resident of South Dakota for a decade. So he knows a little bit about what's on the ground there, what the landscape provides. And uh, he also recounts what The New York Times predicted about uh, Christy Noem's light touch policies versus what actually came to pass and the apocalyptic death tolls that were supposed to afflict South Dakota are supposed to be visited upon South Dakota based on Christy Noem taking the non-lockdown approach that she took have not materialized. So here again, we have another governor that's embarrassing the Dem Socialist governors, that's embarrassing the, administration, embarrassing the administration. Also, both of these governors, embarrassing all of those Dem Socialist governors and the administration when it comes to vaccine administration, as we were talking about earlier in the show, with Sally Pipes. They're getting the job done, leaning on private health care infrastructure in their states, whereas the big bureaucratic government-centric states are not. So it's just worth noting to see how forward-looking the D.C. press corps is, how forward-looking even the Obama administration, at least the political hacks behind the scenes are, in looking at who they have to deal with on the horizon, who is actually putting together quite the attractive, quite the successful record on COVID-19 management and, more generally, how their economies are doing as compared to those big blue states, who presents a real threat to Democrat dominance in D.C. in the coming years. And at the top of that list, the names Ron DeSantis and Christy Noem. This is Dan Prof. Thanks for joining us again on uh, this edition of the program. Please continue to inform yourself so you can be courageous and we can live free. And join us again tomorrow on another edition of the program. This is the Dan Prof Show.